from your favorite podcatchers and our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos, this is Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 23, Godzilla vs. Biolante. Fans and kaiju lovers, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Nathan Marchand. And I'm Brian Scherschel. And in this week's episode, we will be discussing the second of the Heisei films, Godzilla vs. Biolante. We're going to go with Biolante. There's like five different ways to pronounce this name. We're going to go with Biolante. Yeah, I know. You and I have been talking off the air about how we should actually say this. Some of these is a little more problematic than others. I think this one might be one of the more problematic ones. Are you talking about the pronunciation or the movie? Mm, both, <laughs> actually. <laughs> All right, but our first order of business will be the short film description. You ready for this, Brian? Yes, I'm glad I had you start writing these. We have been writing these together uh, for the most part, but uh, starting about a few episodes ago, we uh, I started having you write them, and then we go over them before we before we do this. But uh, th- these movies now, I'm glad that you're writing them. Yeah, I would, I'd be a little <laughs> bit concerned now that we've... This would, is our first real Heisei movie. Yeah, yeah, now that we've hit the Heisei era, I would be afraid that writing these might break you. It, uh, it, is, it does take uh, a certain talent to be able to distill things down to this degree, especially with movies uh, like yeah. this that we're going to be having coming up. So uh, let's get to it. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Godzilla is an aggressive force of nature. He follows Biolante's cries since they are essentially the same creature. Otherwise, he seeks nuclear power plants so he can consume the radiation they produce. Biolante is a genetically engineered tribrid of Godzilla, human, and Rose DNA. In her first form, she is a docile creature controlled by the spirit of Erika Shirigami. Her final form is more ferocious, since her Godzilla instincts are dominant. It's implied that she is sentient. Dr. Jinshiro Shirigami, a brilliant and altruistic scientist, preserves the role of his dead daughter, Erika, by splicing her DNA with that of a rose and later, in a fit of grief, with G-cells. Miki Segusa is a young and quiet girl with exceptional ESP abilities, which she can use to communicate with plants and animals. Major Sho Kuroki, a young and commanding JSDF pilot, heads the Super X-2 team in their operations against Godzilla. His witty partner, Goro Gondo, leads field operations pertaining to protecting or utilizing the anti-nuclear energy bacteria, or ANEB. Dr. Kazuhito Kirishima, a daring and charming geneticist, often accompanies Gondo on these missions. While a few subplots at first seem unconnected to the monsters, the human and kaiju plot lines are unified. The characters are almost always awaiting, creating, or combating the kaiju, or they're fighting over Godzilla cells, which serve as this film's MacGuffin. The Super X-2 battles Godzilla twice in the Pacific, once from the air and once underwater, attacking him with missiles, lasers, torpedoes, and the fire mirror. The mirror partially melts, forcing the Super X-2 to retreat. Godzilla fights the rose form of Biolante, gravely wounding the plant Kaiju, who dissolves into pollen. 
Later, after surfacing in a different location unprotected by the JSDF, Godzilla is deterred by a burst of psychic energy from Mickey. Godzilla destroys the Super X2 in a third battle, although it's only a distraction. The problem is finally solved when, during the final battle with the Super X2, Godzilla is injected with the ANAB. He is lured by the JSDF to a testing field for the Thunder Control System, where he's bombarded by microwave energy and artificial lightning to raise his body temperature so the ANAB can take effect. Biolante returns in a monstrous final form and fights Godzilla, who faints from the ANAB. Biolante ascends into space as pollen, and Godzilla, his body temperature lowered by water, returns to the ocean. The script by writer-director Kazuki Omori, which was revised from a screenplay by Shinichiro Kobayashi, is a complex story with many characters and moving parts. Regardless, almost everything revolves around the kaiju. The special effects were directed for the first time by Koichi Kawakita, who utilized multiple techniques, including miniatures, suitmation, animatronics, and animation. Godzilla was redesigned, creating one of his most popular appearances, the new suit lighter and more comfortable. Stop-motion effects were tested for Biolante, but she was ultimately realized using a combination of suit and puppetry. Her tendrils were controlled by 32 wires and took hours to rig up. The result is a unique and often terrifying kaiju. This is intended to be a dark and serious science fiction story exploring the dangers of genetics. As with many past Godzilla movies, this is a fantasy film despite these sci-fi trappings. In many regards, this is the Godzilla vs. Hedera of the Heisei series. Omori was given tremendous creative freedom, crafting a distinctive entry in the franchise. Biolante is unique in Toho's monster Pantheon, as she is a rare female kaiju and the only plant kaiju. Her design and execution were ambitious and unlike anything seen and done before in the series. The film established the style of the Heisei series, with its beam-heavy kaiju fights, serious tone, tight continuity, recurring characters, psychical elements, extensive sci-fi trappings, pseudo-scientific fantasy, and obvious symbolism. With the marginal success of The Return of Godzilla, producer Tomoyuki Tanaka announced a sequel, so the studio held a screenplay contest to find new ideas. This was won by Kobayashi, a dentist. His script was revised by Omori for a few years before production began. It was intended for adult kaiju science fiction audiences. The film was released in Japan on December 16, 1989, where it sold 2 million tickets and grossed 1.04 billion yen, or $7 million. After settling a lawsuit with Miramax over state-style distribution rights for the film, it was released on VHS and Laserdisc by HBO in 1992 and 1993 respectively. While it underperformed at the box office, it's become a fan favorite. It was even voted the best Godzilla film by votes from Japanese fans and judges on July 14, 2014. The only difference between this version and the international version is an English-language title card. Two rival genetics companies, one in the U.S. called Biomajor and one from the Middle Eastern country of Saradia, compete for a possession of G-cells, resorting to thievery, assassination, and terrorism. It is stated that the ANAB could nullify nuclear weapons and tip the world's balance of power. The ESP Exploitation Institute has psychic children experiencing premonitions of Godzilla's return. The JSDF has a full-time anti-Godzilla task force at the ready despite no sign of the kaiju. Fears about bioengineering are frequently expressed. Dr. Shirogami indicts mankind by saying the real monsters are the humans who created Godzilla and Biolante, which is indirect self-condemnation. This is tempered by Kurishima, who says there are good and bad people everywhere. Both grief and a father's love are shown to be powerful forces that sometimes lead to bad decisions. 
it's stated that the older generation should step down to make way for young people like Major Kuroki. The closing narration ponders the question, how long have we lived in an age like this? This concludes part one of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Part two of the podcast will be the opinion and discussion of the film uh, that we're talking about this week. So I'm actually a little afraid to ask you, Brian. (laughs) What do you think of this one? It is incredibly different. It's got a lot of good stuff going on, but at the same time, I have some misgivings. I can understand. The uh, Return of Godzilla is technically the beginning of this particular cycle of movies, but this is the one that really establishes the trademarks and the style of the Heisei series. Yeah, this style will continue all the way through to uh, Godzilla vs. Destroyer. Yeah, I actually have very distinct memories of when I discovered this movie, because for a long time, this was the farthest that Americans could watch the Godzilla series, because they're just the rest of the Heisei movies didn't get released for a good five, six years after this one was released. In fact, a lot of Americans didn't even know that there were more Godzilla movies after this one. But I can remember I was a teenager and my family went to a blockbuster video. Remember those things, Brian? Barely. Yeah. So we went in there and as was my habit, whenever I went to a video store, I went to the science fiction and fantasy section to see if I could find anything interesting. And I always checked to see what Godzilla movies that they had in stock. And I came across the the VHS copy of this and the cover was just striking this you had this very kind of washed out weird colored the cover with a very small Godzilla and these giant fanged vines looming over him it 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 caught my attention immediately because and I had I didn't even know this movie existed at that point so I actually got a little bit excited because I had discovered something new so I grabbed it immediately (laughs) And took it home with me. So did you like it then? And do you like it now? I remember I remember liking it then. And I do still like it now. But I find myself liking it a bit less. I'm beginning to realize just how good the Showa era was. And how tough of an act it really is to follow up on those. I think part of it is the generational shift. We have a different generation of people making these movies now. Like the sort of transition period was Return of Godzilla. Yeah, because there uh, were a few people from the Showa era who were still there. Yeah, of years roughly around that. Yeah, I think at this point, other than uh, Tomoyuki Tanaka, pretty much everybody working on this movie is brand new. They have a new special effects director with Koichi Kawakita working on this. They have a new director and everything is new. And I think that's in large part because of Kazuki Omori, who was the writer-director on this one. And he would return several more times. In various capacities. Yeah, in various capacities. Sometimes he was writer, Writer sometimes he was director. Mm -hmm. Varying combinations. But he was, I think he was one of the handful of directors that they went to for the, the rest of the Heisei films. And I'll just say, I end up being stuck in sort of a funk for the next 10 years. In my opinion, the the movies from 89 to 99 are my own personal lost decade. 
only in the year 2000, I think, with Mega Gurus, I get out of my little funk with these movies. I'm not going to sit around and hate on these movies, but they, they're they so different. This is so different. Um, there's a really big shift. I didn't see, I don't think, any of these movies when they came out. Most Ameri- vast majority of Americans didn't. And it was because they either weren't released in the theaters or they were just released on DVD or Blu-ray a lot later. Yeah, th- Like a lot, lot later. Yeah, this one was released in the U.S. in 1992, uh, a direct-to-video, and I do think it was shown on HBO, if I remember correctly. So it wasn't shown theatrically. Mm -hmm. One thing I like about Biolante is how good artistically it it looks, for the most part. Specifically, the the kaiju Biolante, but then also the... um, I think the special effects work looks pretty good, for the most part, with regarding the monsters. I think this movie... And a lot of the other movies in that we're going to be doing from this through Destroya in 95, I think that they're very fast. They're fast, and there's a lot that's going on. Large cast of characters, too. And the conversations that people have are fast and complex. And I know that the subtitles are translated from quite a different language, of course, but the subtitles are coming at us so fast that at times it was hard for me to even process them. It was just the movies throwing so much stuff at it, at us, and the scenes change back and forth so quickly. It's jarring. It's like the movie, the continuity within itself is pretty jarring because we're going from one totally different thing to another totally different thing. And I, and I feel like we're watching two different movies. Supposedly, Omori didn't like the Showa series movies because he thought they were too simple. Yeah. And I, 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 he certainly made something that wasn't simple. That's for sure. He, we did go for more complex, wouldn't you say? <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff crammed into these Heisei movies. And I feel like they, these movies were made for more of a Japanese audience than an international audience. Yeah, especially once you get past this one, I think yeah. that's definitely true. For being the flagship series for Toho and considering the, that the Showa series mostly transcended borders, these movies seem smaller in their scope, even though they're so much more complex. I think the problem here is that Omori is mistaking focus for simplicity, and he's mistaking complexity with creativity. I think that's a good way to put it. I think you hit the nail on the head there. Because complex doesn't necessarily mean better. That's the problem. Complex is not one of those things that directly relates to some. If more complex equals good, less complex equals bad. It's not the way this, this works. I think we've shown in the previous episodes, particularly when it came to Sekizawa, that even though the stories are simple, it's, it, they're thematically it, it multifaceted. Seems, yeah, it seems simple, yet it's not. Yeah, they and are deceptively simple. Yeah, and it's, but like this, it's it's so complex. And the movie's complex in that there's a lot of stuff that's going on. A lot of stuff. Uh-huh. It really throws a lot of stuff at us. But at the same time, there's not a lot that's happening. I prefer movies that have stuff happen rather than movies that have a lot of stuff going on. And I think you know that like, there are a lot of ideas that this movie brings up. Yeah. But they're almost like two sentences worth. And it's just like this neat concept that somebody thought of. Yeah. But that nobody ever follows through on it. 
Yeah. And it ends up being about something else. And I thought, okay, why did you even bring it up then? Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of stuff going on, but not as much stuff happening, I think. And that's, I think, the way that a lot of these movies work in the 90s. They're, in general, a lot of movies from the 90s, I don't care where they're made, sometimes they're pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. Especially late 80s, early 90s. I feel like it was a very dark time for the film industry in America and around the rest of the world, too. I would say the the dark time was more the mid to late 90s, but that's just me. Mm. Especially with the Japanese film industry going through what it does very soon with the collapse of the uh, asset bubble and the, the economy going kind of bad in Japan for a while here with the last decade. I think that that affected the film industry. I think they had to make... Uh, cheaper product. Yeah. Uh, that's something that I, I noticed with this movie when I was watching it, because it do, this one looks like it did have some money thrown at it. The effects do this look one, very good. This one does. Yeah. After after this, not as much. Because yeah. post-1990, that, that's when we start having economic yeah. problems. So this was the, the outlier, really, as far as budget. Yeah, because this one still looks modern and i say modern in the sense of it was modern at the time it was released yeah and the 90s movies feel more like throwbacks to the 60s but not the good <laughs> well maybe more like the 70s movies but not in a good sense yeah they because they look old mm-hmm. in their with their production values it actually brings them down even though they would have looked spectacular if they had been released 20 years before them Mm -hmm. i I feel like in a lot of ways this is kind of a pivot point which is it's also a pivot point for creativity because this is this has more of the risk involved in it yeah Um, they tried something really new and different yeah and i i do give them credit for that absolutely because uh it's just you, you can tell how they're really going more out on a limb with this compared to the rest of these that we're going to see. Yeah, and that was uh, that was something that you and I were having a discussion about off the air about how you know in part one we're always talking about whether or not these movies are expansions of style or if they're experimental, and there are there are only a handful that qualify as both an expansion of style and experimental, and this definitely falls under that. Mm-hmm. Usually when you come across a Godzilla film that's both of those things, you get something really interesting. One of the trademarks of Omori that ends up becoming a trademark of the Heisei series is there are frequent references, some may say homages, not sure, to American films because Omori loved American movies. I've seen the description also as aping (laughs) but yeah i actually have read that and this might sound a little bit disappointing to some people that making a godzilla movie was secondary in omori's mind what he wanted to do primarily with this was make a james bond movie and you can definitely tell there's with all the intrigue and everything that's going on with this it's definitely got that sort of a flavor to it. But then again, it has flavors of several other things as well. Right. He liked American blockbusters, liked American movies. And, and we'll, be, we'll be seeing that as it, as it continues on in this series. But anything Omari has to do with, we'll, we'll see some uh, homages or aping or whatever people want to refer to it as. The thing is, 
I'm actually a little bit bothered by the obviousness of the influences in this movie. Like I said, it has it has a J. It, it's like a James Bond movie, and we talked about Gator, the three-headed monster from 1964, which has a James Bondian flavor to it, but it's a flavor. Yeah. It's not the same as being an actual James Bond movie, except with kaiju in it, which is what this feels like oftentimes. Essentially, uh, it's. I think the key issue here is subtlety. The, it was more subtle in this show a series but i mean maybe not with the apes part <laughs> that was a little off but but then again it, it wasn't a planet of the apes movie no That's it wasn't and and this the the key issue is subtlety and how a lot of these movies from 89 through 95 they aren't very subtle everything's right there for everybody to notice and see and, and everything's really direct yeah it's I hate to use this word, but it's an unfortunate characteristic of the Heisei series. It's a lot more on the nose. Makes me miss Sekizawa. Me too. Also, do you notice how all of these movies refer to Godzilla as it from now on through 95? Yep. Yeah. I, and it's more of the depersonalization along with how these movies are so serious now. A lot of these movies now are going to be a lot different tone wise than what we've been seeing in the 60s and 70s. For the most part, anyway. Yeah, there's there are a few little exceptions. But overall, these movies are pretty serious. Almost too serious, well, they, honestly. I tried to count the number of times when I watched this that I smiled, not because I was laughing at it, but because I was actually smiling out of genuine joy or happiness or because something was funny, and it didn't happen very often. <laughs> yeah, I know, which, I know how you feel. <laughs> so now that we've described... This are our sort of general take on the Heisei series. We can go more into uh, stuff that we liked about this movie because we always want to hit stuff that we like. And I do have, thankfully, a list. Um, <laughs> I like how magic is in this film. There's a lot of fantasy, but at the same time, it's pretty much magic the way that Biolante turns into the the pollen slash spores or, or whatever that uh-huh. they are. And, and that's very fantasy like yeah that see that was that's actually one of the things that's a little bit odd about this because i noticed that the heisei movies try to be a lot more scientific which is where some of the complexity comes in there's a lot of as they say in star trek techno jargon that gets thrown into this because this is about the time in science fiction and speculative fiction storytelling where we're getting away from the radiation as magic to the genetics as magic sort of era there was that shift and you see it in this but then you throw in the the spiritual elements in this because they're talking about a girl's spirit and inhabiting the rose and turning into the pollen and then coming back down and and, about Biolante being supernatural in some ways so she's in on one hand very supernatural but on the other hand a genetic mutation and all kinds of weird things it's 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 a very odd sort of combination but also a unique one i would say it's strange having this much science and at the same time having this much fantasy at the same time i know that's why it's odd that's why it is so very odd but i do like the part where the parts where biolante turns into magic or turns into the the spores and everything there's something mystical about it and i think if this movie was all science 
like just trying to totally take Godzilla into a and create it into a scientific phenomenon, I think it would have made it made it boring. Even the part where you have the the Photoshop photo of the girl as the pollen floats up into the air. That's a little odd. <laughs> and it's something I even missed the first time I saw it, just because there was so much stuff that was happening otherwise. Or going on, not happening. You know, that, that was something uh that was something I was trying to remember. The 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 shot that they have during the credits that's supposed to be showing you the the Biolante pollen up in space. Mm-hmm. I swear to you, when I watched this on VHS, it was the final form of Biolante it sh- uh, shaped in the pollen. But when I watched the Blu-ray, it was the rose form, and it was bright. It was bright red, and I'm thinking, I don't remember it looking like that. It's like this Mandela effect thing. I remember this differently. Hmm. I don't have this time stamped, but there's uh, there's a scene early on when Mickey and Mickey Sagusa and her handler go back to the psychic institute and they have all the they're talking about how all of the children there the psychic children have been having the same dream and they told the children to draw what they had been dreaming and then they all walk in and they both of them walk in and they say okay kids what what did you see in your dream and then they all hold up pictures of godzilla and it's a foreshadowing of godzilla's return out of mount mahara and then when the kids all hold up the the pictures they play the Afuka Bay theme, mm-hmm. and I actually liked the scene. I thought that was actually pretty yeah. effective. I don't know how you felt about that it, but good. I liked it. I liked it, yeah. So they were trying something new. It's a new sort of concept to throw in there, even though they've dabbled in it a little bit with the Shoba Gene. But I thought it was a a nice way to start planting the seeds and foreshadow Godzilla returning to the big screen. Yeah, that's a good point. And we've hinted at it a little bit already, but one of the the greatest strengths of this movie, I do think, is the special effects. I'm in particular, I'm really fond of the ocean scenes with Godzilla when he's fighting the Super X two. I was thinking to myself a lot when I was watching. It's like this looks really good. I know it was filmed in the big Toho pool, but I can't tell that it's a pool. The backdrop looks great. The suit looks great. The model work is great. It really creates the illusion that this isn't just on a big pool on a soundstage. I I think it's actually one of the most impressive special effects sequences in the entire film. I think it might be. Yeah, um, there's a lot of a lot of the water stuff. You can just tell it takes longer, and there's more of a different mode of production with the stuff that takes place in the water because Biolante is often in the water too. And so there's a lot of water stuff throughout the throughout the movie, and you can tell that some of it was probably a lot more challenge than than it would be, would have been otherwise. Yeah, and and speaking of Biolante, Biolante I th- is one of the most unique kaiju, not only in Godzilla films. I think Biolante is one of the most unique films in all of kaiju films because I can't think of too many kaiju films that have plant monsters. Right. We have a lot of giant animals, we have a lot of dinosaurs, reptiles, insects, stuff like that, but we don't really have plant monsters. This is one of the reasons why I say that Biolante, the film, feels modern, at least in terms of when it was released, because of the design of Biolante being a plant monster and 
have with all of the teeth and the giant head and the tendrils and the tendrils have teeth on them. Uh, even the rose form that we see at the beginning. That's complex too. Yeah. It's such an interesting design. The, the rose form very much communicates a sense of innocence, a sense of vulnerability, because that's when the, the spirit of Erica is supposed to be more in control. And then the, that absolutely terrifying fo- final form that we get at the end of the movie. It's, it's actually, I think, one of the scariest looking kaiju that has ever been produced you know, with that giant maw filled with teeth and all of the tendrils. It's just it's great. It looks amazing. It's one of the most amazing, complex-looking monsters that we've had. It's it's a it's a really good idea to finally create a plant monster. Probably one of the most experimental things about this movie is the kaiju itself. Yeah, I, I can remember every time I watch this movie, I am always amazed at what they pulled off with the effects working on this. And the thing that makes it even more interesting is almost all of the effects for Bialante are practical. Mm-hmm. It's the, it is a suit. There's a guy in there, but a lot of the stuff that they were doing involved wire work and marionettes, all yeah, those people tendrils or people above it. Yeah, yeah. All those tendrils. I, was just, I don't even want to think about trying to coordinate all of that stuff. Another thing that's cool about the special effects is they actually spliced in footage of actual helicopters and tanks. And I thought, the they move they put it they inserted it quite seamlessly i thought it was very effective as we mentioned with uh, previously with nakano in the 70s uh the special effects guys usually have some sort of trademark that you see in their films with nakano it was fire and explosions kawakita he loves glitter lots and lots of glitter you'll see it a lot in these movies one thing i really like is how there's a younger man in charge of so much of the human plot for once, we, we don't have an older figure. He's a, specifically a, quite a young figure. It actually reminded me a little bit of Shin Godzilla, how there's a younger figure who is involved. I really like how that also symbolizes the, the turning over of a new generation, you know, giving the reins to a newer group of people. And I think they could have just gone with somebody who was 50, but they didn't. And instead they went with a, a, younger, a younger person to be in, uh, in charge of so much. This is completely superficial, but I really like his bomber jacket. That thing looks yeah, the costume's good. Yeah, the costume's nice. Yeah, I kind of want that bomber jacket. <laughs> yeah, I do too. It looked good. At the timestamp at roughly 42 minutes and 49 seconds in, we get one of my favorite Godzilla actors, in, uh, and his name is Koichi Ueda. Um, he's in a number of the Godzilla movies from here on out, but I'm pretty sure this is the first time we see him. Uh, he is... Uh, I think he's pretty funny at times in in these movies, and I think he's just for some reason he just totally looks the part of a Godzilla actor. I don't I don't know. <laughs> There's a look. I, I, I don't know, but if there is a look, it might very well be him. <laughs> Another favorite part I have is at 40 minutes and 37 seconds in, and it's that uh, it's that pre Marilyn Manson guy who's on that Devil Throne. I was going to bring that's, him up. That's awesome. I saw that kind of, uh, uh, I just wrote down in my notes because he's only on the screen for a few seconds and then there's a, he gets interrupted by the news yeah. and I wrote in my notes, no, I want more Japanese Dracula. <laughs> and along those same lines, the part where that concert is going on and then it ends, that's hilarious. <laughs> so we play that tiny little bit of music and then the, the, 
the singer's like, oh, uh, we gotta go. Bye. <laughs> Monsters are coming. And then 80 minutes in, we get the newest recording of the Kaiju Daisenso March. Did you hear that? Yes. Yes, that was awesome. I like that part. It's a good callback to a classic Godzilla. There's a couple of those, actually. In this, I already mentioned the Fukube yeah, the, theme. Yeah, the Fukube. Uh, that with for the Psychic in. Girls. And then the first shot we get of Godzilla in this movie, when he comes out of Mount Mahara, they play it again. Mm-hmm. That's about 40 minutes in. Yeah. So you can definitely tell that they're, they're paying homage to what came before them, but you can tell that the Fukube left an indelible mark on the franchise. It's in the extra features on the Blu-ray, but there's a making of a little documentary that is on there. And there's part of it where they show a deleted scene where all the Biolante spores uh, made all of those flowers bloom around Godzilla. And yes. the mu- that music is playing that the music actually fits with the, what we're seeing on the screen for once. And we get to see all of these beautiful flowers and the, and the music, and it's just this really magic moment. I, I, I thought you, you people had me nuts to not keep that in. I know it, looks it was so pretty. It looks really nice, and it's a good idea too. Just like the the whole desert is. It was meant to be yeah. a callback to how yeah. a desert can have the flowers bloom on one day. That's really special. That's the whole point. Yeah, they they really shouldn't have kept that out. That was it was a wonderful shot. Regarding the theme. That's another thing that I do like about this is because the theme is quite explicit. Just like a lot of stuff in this film is explicit, but they yes. they do say that the the lesson here is they almost say that, but the the there are good people and there are bad people in every country. Mm-hmm. That is a very good message, and it just is another indicator here that as uh, there's sometimes a, a feeling by some that these movies are anti-American or something, or that the, the yeah. fact that there are Americans shooting at Japanese people, like how many minutes into this movie at the start of it, but not they, very long, not very long. It's not about that though. It's about how there are good people and bad people in every country. And I do like that message. Yeah. I was glad that they, uh, that they put that in there. We got another big redesign for Godzilla in this. And I actually really like this design. It's it's a very popular design. And with minor modifications, this is the design that we're going to see for the rest of the Heisei series. Mm-hmm. And it's a design that I think for a lot of people, when you mention Godzilla, it's one that comes to mind because it got emulated a lot. The Dark Horse was publishing Godzilla comic books in the 90s. And that was the design that they used in their comics. I've seen this design used in a lot of video games. So it, it was a very popular one. It was also the design that was used by Trendmasters in the 90s when they made their action figures here in the United States. And I have a lot of those action figures, so I was very familiar with that design. In fact, I think I may have even started seeing the action figures before I started watching the movies. I, do, I like this suit, too. It's probably my mm, second or third favorite. It's, I'm still a diehard fan of the 1968 to 1972 suit that was used for a uh, nakajima but th- this one's really good too it it, it has it, it it is very prolific image it does appear a lot uh and so i think it's still i think it left a really big uh indelible mark on people's minds for for what they think of godzilla when they hear the word and i think this is definitely up there is what people think of in their mind one of the stylistic points that i have to give to this movie is i really like that 
the kaiju battles take place at night. It creates a very interesting atmosphere to I think it. Almost all of them do in this one, don't they? All of, of them do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's two. There's two kaiju fights, and they both take place at night. Whereas the Godzilla's battles with the Super X two are in broad daylight out in the ocean. Mm-hmm. So it's some nice contrast. So you get you can have both. You can you can have the day shots where you can get more of the detail, but then the really atmospheric night battles later. I think it does make sense to have Godzilla fight Violante at night. Don't ask me why. It just seemed more sensible. And something else that I really liked, it's a it's a very nice piece of world building, and it's actually a little bit more of a... It, it might even be one of the rare instances of subtlety in this, and that was the Godzilla Memorial Lounge in that one building in one of the, the early scenes when a couple of the characters are talking. Yeah. I thought that was really cool. And you could tell someone really, the set designers really worked hard to make that look believable and interesting because it. I'm guessing it was a building that Godzilla attacked in the previous movie and they made a what looks like a hole in the building that's shaped like his hand, about the same size maybe. Mm. And then I believe that there were some name plaques there. It's probably listing the names of the people who died during that attack. And I thought that's that's a very nice, cool thing to have in this movie. It's yeah, not something it's like we've seen the, before. Yeah, it's almost like that thing at the CIA, and you and you go in, and there's all the, all the, all those who had given their lives and everything for. Yeah, it's it's interesting how that how that was in there. I, it was a nice touch. Maybe it's the nostalgia talking, but I actually like the Super X too. Hmm. It's it, it, it's a very interesting successor to the original Super X. It starts. Especially with this movie, it starts getting very science fictional because it has all of the the energy weapons and the synthetic diamond that can reflect atomic rays. <laughs> I'm not sure how that's supposed to work, but we'll go with it because it's cool. And like I mentioned before, the battles with it are very nice. So I can't. I'm kind of a sucker for interesting science fiction vehicles like that. Although this next one. This next one, Brian, the other thing I like, I have a feeling we're going to go a little bit Siskel and Ebert with this, given the conversations we've had off the air. But I actually like the scene where Mickey is redirecting Godzilla with her powers. How so? Uh, I think the effects in that are actually done pretty well. Oh, the stuff with Godzilla glowing, that that glow or whatever. Well, not that. I'm talking about you know him actually being off in the distance it it actually feels like he's actually there. Oh yeah, for me, they, they do make it feel like he's there. So, and the fact that it's quiet and not a lot is going on on screen, but it really gives me a sense of Godzilla's presence and his his size. Well, there's a lot going on. It's just there's nothing happening. Yeah, yeah, and I understand that that's why you don't like it. But it's not they don't like it. It's just nothing's happening. Yeah, yeah. But I enjoyed, like I said, I enjoyed the sequence. And it does get a little bit weird at the end with the weird color things that they do when her powers start really pushing against him. But I I thought for the most part it was well executed and kind of suspenseful. We can move now on to the things that we either don't like or just find odd. Uh, There are some things in this movie that since we have a whole like 12 minutes of extra footage past that then past my favorite 90 minutes we we end up with different things but this movie is i think one of the weirdest movies in the series 
I'm not disagreeing with you there. There's also too many things going on, like I said, but there, it's also this, when I first watched this, this was one of the last Godzilla movies I actually ever saw. Really? Yes, this is very, very late. Some of these uh, other 90s movies I, I saw not, you know, pretty long time ago comparatively, but this one I saw very late. Um, the the part where the the BioWars music plays and the and that they're shoot the, the whole shootout battle, I had, I I recoiled at first and I was like, what is this? And then I was like, oh, it's 1989. Of course, there's gonna be uh, some weird pot. You know, if I wasn't educated enough on this, I'd say it was anti-American. Yeah. I can I can see what but you mean. It's 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 not like we've just said what the theme really is. Does this music fit with what's going on on the screen? I like the music. Sure. Does it fit? Because it's played like three times. Yeah, the 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 shootout is the most prominent part. Yeah, the shootout scene is probably where the music is most incongruous. It is. I remember watching it, is, it, it the first time, and it was it was just so weird. When I watch it now, I, I just keep thinking, "Oh, Bio Wars!" You and are, then the, you are almost the part where the Godzilla theme actually comes in. Yeah, and that, I'm like, "Oh no! Wow! Okay." It's almost like if I was 25 and somebody asked me to make a movie for them, and, and I find this awesome piece of music, and I'm like, "Oh, we have to use this!" And, and then somebody's like, "It doesn't fit at all." And then I think, um, use it anyway. (laughs) If I was 25 years old. Yeah. Or younger. But I, yeah, the BioWars music is good and all, but really, I I don't think it has a place. And I think that, didn't we read where somebody, wasn't it like Ikafube or somebody was watching some of these 90s films and they had some misgivings themselves? Yeah. I mean, Honda did. Mm -hmm. Ikafube did. Yeah. We're not alone in this assessment. And it's just that it totally doesn't fit is all. And I don't, I don't want to belabor this issue, but it just seems rather odd. Also, when you're starting your movie, possibly the worst thing you want to start your movie with is text scrolling across a computer screen. Yeah. I think that was another attempt at some world building because it's talking about this four level alert system. Yes. The Godzilla Godzilla. alert warning system or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Which then gets repeated uh, throughout the movie one once each, yeah once each level of it is achieved yes and I'm thinking I think you need to cut if you're gonna have it you need to cut one of them either have them peppered throughout or just sure. have it at the beginning if you have to have it one or the other instead of repeating them later but just don't start with that and then the other thing is. Uh, the, the 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 English reporter speaking English, that's just about <laughs> as riveting as the text on the computer screen. When I when I when I hear you talk about now, I just keep thinking of a joke that uh, an internet personality goes by the name Linkara, where he, whenever something like that comes up, he calls it Exposition News Network. Yeah, because <laughs> that's really all it is. It's ENN. Yeah, <laughs> or, or or in this case, it's CCN. Which is one of two CNN analogs in this in this movie. It's odd. <laughs> yeah, and and it's and it's like now we have this modern media stuff because that we're that late in the timeline now and in, in the Godzilla series. I'm like, oh great, we have the media, fun, riveting. 
again, as I was watching this movie, I said the word riveting sarcastically about 10 times. <laughs> Only 10? <laughs> Maybe more. As a film viewer, one of my biggest misgivings with this movie is the camera work. The cinematography and the camera work in these 90s films, not Return of Godzilla, but 89 through 95. I think it's so boring. It's just like there's a guy standing there with the camera, just holding it. We're subjected to these close views a lot and this unimaginative camera positioning. And like the, it seems like the camera isn't really helping to tell the story. And I keep wanting the cameraman to back up. And I keep wanting Toho Scope back too, by the way, because I think Scope serves a kaiju movie better than the, the, the way that these are filmed. But it's just that if you look at a Fukuda film and then you go to this, you can definitely tell the difference. So this country is called Saradia, right? This It's probably like what, Middle Eastern country of it some is. sort, probably in the Arab world, right? So I, they're oil producers and stuff. I think we didn't have enough stock footage in there showing that, right? Oh, no, not at all. <laughs> well, I, just... I need more stock footage to prove that we're really there. <laughs> I'm just cracking up because we, this is a fictional country, and I keep thinking back to Mothra, where we had Rolissica, which, as we discussed in that episode, is supposed to be a stand-in for the United States and the Soviet Union, which is you can kind of see in the name, but it's still very subtle. This one, there's there's pretty much no hiding it. It's really obvious that this is supposed to be Saudi Arabia. <laughs> it's, like I said, it's on the nose. So Radia, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Almost fooled me, right? Also, that building that's in Saradia, and we're talking about at 7 minutes and 32 seconds in, that building is like 50% stairs. <laughs> yes. <It's, laughs> seen any building like this in my life whoever's job it is that they have to actually walk up and down those stairs repeatedly i'd really hate my job i would be petitioning (laughs) for an elevator to be built soon it's so messed up it's so unattractive like i want to call mcmansion hell (laughs) i want to ask her what 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 she thinks of this architecturally but it's an architectural nightmare but it's just looking at the building it looks like somebody composited another building into that building it just is funny looking but anyway something that all the seradia stuff starts especially with sss9 the secret agent because even though his name's never mentioned it's supposed to stand for seradian secret agent nine okay that just sounds really weird to say his Everybody, there, there's a, actually a fair amount of English in this, in the Japanese version. And the Japanese subtitles, we have easily broken our record of the number of Japanese subtitles, too. Yeah. But here's the problem. Everybody in this movie, whether they're Japanese or Westerner, whatever, everyone who speaks English in this movie, it's very awkward. It doesn't sound good. Now, I can forgive the Japanese actors. I can forgive them. The rest of them are even worse. Yeah, but the rest of them, I I don't get it. Their only excuse can be that they're bad actors. And I have a terrible time understanding them. I had to rewind the, or I had to go back in in order to, like, what did they, oh, okay. The worst one is the Saradian agent, Uh because there are so many points where I'm thinking he's trying to say B.A., 80s action movie one-liners 
and they come across either unintelligible or just plain lame or awkward or awkwardness is is pretty high. Yeah. It's just, I just keep looking at that Saradian assassin and all I keep thinking is, dude, you look better than you sound. Now you look like a walking cliche. You look like every other American eighties action star. I mean, you look kind of like the Terminator or Stallone and Cobra or everybody else in a low budget eighties action movie. Congratulations. You even pointed out to me, and I even missed it, the, the fact that they mentioned Lethal Weapon. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even hear him as he said that because it was, one, hard to hear him and two, hard to understand him. Yeah. But, it, but we rounded a few times in order to get it. And I was like, oh, I, that totally just yeah. even went over my head. And, and I've seen this movie a lot, but every time I watch it, I feel like I didn't. Yeah. I don't know. It, it, yeah. It's, it's like there's a wall between me and this movie. It seems like it. I don't know. Although I could kind of understand why you might have forgotten that uh, forgotten that part. That was uh, that was the bio major guys. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. They were in a shootout with right. the Saradian agent, oh. and one of them just. I feel like that had to have been improvised. Either that or Amori told him to say it because I can believe Amori would tell him to say it. Yeah, probably. It's, but it sounded scripted scarily enough. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I could definitely see that. But yeah, I just also the, when the Saradian agent opens the blinds and he says, "Damn," <laughs> and, and I'm like, "Okay, that's the same way that I would say damn if I got my flight delayed at the airport." And I'd be like, "Damn," it's <laughs> the same kind of expression that he does. It's like, "Oh, you missed your flight. That's too bad." It's just that I don't know if I'd be saying that with regards to Godzilla, but oh well. Have you noticed that with these monster fights that the humans explain everything that's going on at the same time as the fight's going on? Yes. We're going to run into a lot of that, I think, don't we? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, it's, and it's like, oh, how about you show us what's happening on the screen and then show the characters narrating the action back and forth? Good. <laughs> but if you're going to film a monster fight... Do you really need anyone to explain it if you film it well enough? No. <laughs> Not as much as we see. Not yeah. as much talking as we see. It's almost like they're announcers. <laughs> it's like, oh, the momentum's with Biolante. <laughs> oh, no. <sighs> yeah, we know what's happening on the screen. We can, we're watching it, too. We, uh-huh. can, we can tell. Uh-huh. We can tell. You can just trust us to understand what's happening on the screen so long as you present what you're, what you're trying to do. Where audiences are supposed to be able to do that <laughs> with what's happening on in a movie. It's not anything new for me. Yeah, but that's not the only thing that the the kaiju fights in this are establishing, because we get our first kaiju battle of the Heisei era in this. And as will be exemplified even more as these movies progress, is it's very beam intensive. Oh yeah. Lots of shooting at each other. Godzilla blasts Biolante a lot. Biolante spits acidic sap on him. She doesn't really have a breath attack. She has she spits sap. In some ways, it's it's a, she's a lot like Hetera in that respect, always using acid as a weapon. But the thing is, is as these movies progress, we aren't we're going to see a lot less grappling and fisticuffs like we would see in the Showa era. Not as much sumo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now we don't see as much of that this time because, I mean, admittedly, it would be difficult to do with a with a kaiju like Biolante, but she still has those tendrils, and Godzilla f- 
grapples with the tendrils and fights with the tendrils. Yeah, that's some, nice and physical. Yeah, and that actually is some of the best moments in the kaiju battle for me, is him fighting with the tendrils. The acid, I really like that. I think the effects look nice. Yeah, most definitely. But there's a lot of beams that, that we'll be seeing in these future movies. Rather beam intensive, you're right. Yeah, it, like I said, it's one of the trademarks of this particular era. We mentioned uh, Mickey Sagusa already in this podcast so far, but to me, the Mickey Sagusa character is puzzling. It seems to be an underformed character, and I think it came from the, the 90s stuff with, with psychics. I remember 90s movies and television having some of that in there at times. Well, it was also the heyday of these the psychic hotlines that you see advertised <clears throat> on TV. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and we all know what jokes those were. But it's like she's there for to get more women in the theater seats. And once they do create her as a character, it seems like she doesn't do much of anything. There's a lot going on with her, like I've said, but there is not much of anything happening. Part of it is because it's hard to dramatically show something in a movie that involves psychic stuff, period. Because you put the camera on them and they're thinking. And it's almost like it's a method actor. Where it's like, oh no, I, I am the part I think I am. <laughs> no, act. I want you to act. And the same thing with all the psychic stuff. It's like that mystery science theater joke. And there were, uh, I think it was Bill in one of those episodes. And he was like, thrill as she thinks. <laughs> it's just that there's no action taking place. There's nothing happening. Yeah, she stares at Godzilla and faints. That's what happens. But there's a lot going on. That's a lot more than what's happening. That's the issue here. And like, does a woman need to have a woman character in a movie in order for her to care about that movie? I would say no, but... Just like you don't need to have a little kid in a movie in order for little kids to like it. And so I'm not exactly sure if the Mickey Segusa character is pandering or if they're trying to take an element of the the Shobajin and we're just getting more of, I guess, that. Even though I like the Shobajin way better. The 1993 film is probably where she does the most, Mickey Segusa. Mecha but, Godzilla 2? Yes, but she she's in a lot of these movies, but it doesn't seem like she's really in them. But yeah. Again, it's almost like I'm watching two movies. A lot of the time I'm seeing this. Yeah. It's, but I don't think it would have killed them to have it like give her a character arc. I would agree with you there. And I can remember when, the first time I watched this, I had no idea at the time that there were more movies after this. And then finding out that she became the one recurring character, or at least major recurring character in mm -hmm. the Heisei series. It, it's rare to find characters like that in the Godzilla franchise, period. And I just thought, you know, when I see her in this movie, it just seems like an odd choice. Why her? I don't know. Especially with what they do with her later. And I, I do think she's a character who had potential, but I yeah, don't think... there's a lot of potential there. Yeah, but I don't think they she, she was used as well as she should have been. No. I mean, they, they, could have, they could have made stuff happen to her more... And have her react to it. But instead she's an ancillary character, yet she comes back over and over. So it's an odd mix. You know, usually if you have a recurring character, you want to do a whole lot with them. But because she's not 
a central character in a lot of these. She's an ancillary character or a secondary character. And so I don't know what that buys us Well, at the it, end of the day. Yeah, and, and like I said, they there really was a lot of potential you could have done with her. I mean, the, the scene you were talking about on the helipad, one of the things that I wrote that was meant to be a little bit humorous when I saw that was she manages to use her abilities to somehow make Godzilla change direction, go somewhere else, and then she passes out. And then I wrote in my notes, is she an Omega-level mutant now? Is she Dark Phoenix? <laughs> well, I don't know. All that seems to happen in the scene is that she thinks herself into a coma. Yeah, which they, they talk about in a scene later when they see her in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Because they said that she just she exhausted herself because yeah. Godzilla is just that powerful somehow that even if you go at him psychically, he can mess with you. It's all rather nebulous, though. Yeah. So where did the extra 15 minutes of this movie come from? We can chalk it up to psychics, gun battles with Americans and uh, Saradians with video game music in the background. I think a lot of it is the tech stuff. The tech stuff and the psychic stuff, for the most part. There's a lot of techno and, and jargon human, in this. And the human plotline is pretty long. It is. I, how long do you suppose the script is for this? Like, do you, If we actually got the script, printed it out, and uh, then we got oh, the original Mechagodzilla from 1974, and we printed out those two scripts, I'm pretty sure that this one would be twice as thick because of all of the words being said. Because there's a lot of words coming at us. I would say it'd probably be at least 50 pages longer. Most scripts, at least in American films, are about 100 pages. Mm -hmm. So it's just there's so much. It's it's dense. Yeah. It's like in uh, the Plinkett videos where they show that one producer from uh, the the Star Wars movie. And he was like, it's so dense. There's so many things going on. And they replaced he he replaced that uh, that (laughs) clip clip. over and over again. (laughs) It's so dense. There's so much stuff going on. But this really is is that is one of those movies where there's a lot going on. Lots of characters, lots of stuff, lots of exposition, lots of attempts at world building, I'll say. You notice that scene where the helicopter takes off? I timed that. It's 27 seconds of nothing yeah. but a helicopter taking off. Now, if I was the editor for that, I would have clipped that down to 10 at the most, but but I was just sitting here watching this, and I was like, "How long is this? This feels like an eternity." Anyway, so it's night, and they're together on the beach. That scene, you remember? Uh-huh. And they immediately start talking about work, mainly Godzilla, <laughs> and, and and the plot we have unfolding supposedly at some point ahead of them. But they're just talking about all this stuff with Godzilla. And it bored me, and it made me glad that it started raining on them. <laughs> because I just wanted to have it end. Like karma was just kicking in and saying, nope, you need to shut up. Yes. Like, <laughs> well, at least the weather intervened so that they could stop talking about Godzilla for a minute. But that's the, that's the other thing with these movies is, is that there's – even the, the scenes that don't have Godzilla in them, they're constantly talking about him. I know. he's it. He's the yeah, – It, he's, him, whatever. He, he, it, whatever, is kind of the center of the Heisei movie universe. Yeah, it keeps the gravity point. It, it just keeps going back there every time. And, and, and it's like everybody's engaging in shop talk. And it's like nobody has any lives. 
And if you go back to the Soa series, a lot of these characters had their own lives or their own jobs or, or something that was not revolving around Godzilla 100% of the time. And with this, everybody's engaging in shop talk, and that's the only thing that's on anybody's mind. And I think it's hilarious at some point that, that it's just, if you notice these as you're watching them, it happens so often. The other things I have are just some funny things that we've noticed. Um, and I'm sure you have some of those too. Uh, one of the things is that they, they received the, a, a fax from the terrorists. Well, biomajor. Well, the, it's an actual the corporation. Corporate they, terrorists. Yeah, yeah yes. corporate terrorists. Yeah. Essentially is how they're operating. Uh, I think that's hilarious. And I was like, terrorism by fax. That is so <laughs> terrorism impolite. By fax. <laughs> so impolite to get that kind of a fax. There's also, there are two lines that I absolutely laugh so hard. One of them is, Godzilla and Biolante are identical, except one is an animal and one is a plant. Aww. It's, at, it's at 2330. That is the timestamp. 23 and a half minutes. At, and I was like, wait. <laughs> so they're the same identical in that they're not. Okay. But it's just once you see that line up there in a subtitle on the screen, it's just hilarious to look at that sentence. The other hilarious one is when he says, and it's 34 minutes and 54 seconds in, and he says, what you are seeing is no ordinary plant. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> I was dying. No kidding, Captain I was, Obvious. I was just dying laughing at that line the last time I saw this. I was just, that's so precious. That's a perfect line. This is one of our trademarks, so I have to bring it up. Do you think we have a falling into the ocean moment at the end of this? I mean, it's just Godzilla's I, face. I thought about that too. But no. does it count? Doesn't count. Does it count? No. Just the face? No. Okay. Oh, well, <laughs> I thought I would ask because it's one of our things. You see that part when that guy's looking into the microscope and we see like 20 seconds of footage of this cell eating another cell? Yeah. And then he winces at it. Like, oh, what I'm looking at is so wrong on so many levels. It's just that, ew. It's the, he gives this sort of, ew, wincing at what he's seeing in the microscope. It's hilarious. Even though I see this every day because I'm a geneticist. Yeah, I look at microscopes all the time, but this is just plain wrong. I'm doing this to save my daughter, but this is this is disgusting. But I'm I, not saying any of this. I almost wish we could be back in the old days of Cetopia and Emperor Antonio. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I was thinking back to Dr. Mafune from Terror of Mechagodzilla, and all I kept thinking is, Harada is uh, such a better actor than you are, dude. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> if I want a conflicted scientist trying to save his daughter, I'll stick with him. Yeah, this 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 guy is a little bit more twisted, I think. That's saying a lot. The soundtrack of this movie is really different. And yes. We're we're done with funny stuff, but I'm I'm going to do one more funny thing. And and that is at 38 minutes and 13 seconds in, we get our uh polka music. <laughs> what is it? I don't know what it is. I want this music turned into a ringtone. I want that ringtone. I can make that happen if you want. Yeah. Well, I can, I, 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 I'll, break, I'll get a recording of it, and we can, we can have that. And everybody on the, on the bus or the subway or whatever will be like, what is that? What cracks me up about that is that that's during a scene when a couple of our heroes are trying to get into the truck that it controls the bombs that are going to release Godzilla. 
and the the assassin is trying to stop them. And there's a point when the music kicks in, he starts descending the stairs, and it looks like he's Mickey Mousing. You know that term where you you make the soundtrack fit the actual scene, so when someone is walking, uh-huh. they play little notes as they're walking, and because of the tempo, and since he's running down the stairs, it looks like he's Mickey Mousing. Mm-hmm. I'm like, this is unintentionally funny. Yeah, it, it was pretty funny. I, I, I think they used this music twice. A couple of times, I yeah. think. Uh, look, it's more than once. And I was like, oh, this again, fun. But it's <laughs> it's very uh, interesting choice of music for what's happening on the screen, again. Um, but but there are parts, especially where Biolante is on the screen, that the music is good. And it, yes. and it has this atmosphere of uh, wonderment, uh, mysterious. Ethereal. Ethere- yeah. Yeah, I, I like that music. And then when the, the in the deleted scene where there were the flowers everywhere... Music sounds very good, very appropriate, totally works. Yeah, it's it's very much a product of its time. You know, the late 80s when synthesizers were, were a big thing, it has very much a, a, that sort of a sound to it. I have to admit, though, I'm still, even though it it is, even though it doesn't quite fit, I'm still a big fan of BioWars. <laughs> I am too, uh, I mean, At, on its own. yeah. One of my favorite lines in the movie is, I believe it's from the guy who is the the JSDF officer who's stationed at Mount Mahara, because he's supposed to sit there, he's part of a task force that's supposed to watch to see if Godzilla ever gets out of the volcano, and he makes this joke about how Godzilla has now become a monster who eats tax money. Yeah, because paid, nothing paid, happened. Paid to sit there and do nothing. He's, yeah, he's getting paid to sit there and do nothing. He even has Godzilla memorabilia. I think mm-hmm. he has a Godzilla figurine. Yes, I've even read that if you look carefully, there's a model of the oxygen destroyer. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like this guy is just—he's just sitting there thinking, "I—I'm uh, bored, but it's cushy." Let's you become know? Godzilla experts while we're sitting here waiting for it to come out of the volcano. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it, that seems like something you would see in some newspaper editorials. Godzilla is a monster who eats tax money now. They are wasting their time. <laughs> we'll be there. talking. Yeah, we'll be talking about uh, taxes in Japan at some point. They're a little high. Uh, so th- that's a one. I think that's one reason where uh, that's coming from. This is just a funny observation from me. But about 43 minutes into the movie, when we see the Super X2 launch sequence, I wrote down, Thunderbirds are go. Yeah. <laughs> Which was, Thunderbirds, for those who don't know, was a British television series from the 60s that was done using marionettes and models. And it was these five guys who, well, not five guys, these five pilots. Uh, some could fly, someone on the ground. And it wasn't like Voltron or something where they would combine, but they would go off to take care of either the villain of the week or crisis of the week or something like that. And every episode, they were showing off the launch sequences so they could really say, hey, look at how cool our models are. (laughs) So I was thinking of that while the Super X was prepping to leave. Yeah, there is some fetishization of the technology that's going on in this. And I I love that... uh, I love that one guy that we see throughout the movie, but he has his big moments toward the end when he goes into the city and he has the bazooka so they could put in the anti-nuclear energy bacteria. And there's a point where he's at the in the top floor of a building, so he's eye level with Godzilla, 
and he gets the bazooka out and shoots the 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 rocket with the bacteria in it and Godzilla swallows it and he tries his hardest to throw out some action movie one-liners and it just sounds funny to me. <laughs> he says, medicine tastes better when you take it orally. Mm-hmm. It's like, really? It's the best you got? I think in the dub version, he says, you should quit smoking. I wonder if Omori wrote the wrote what's supposed to be in the dub, too. I wonder how they decide that. <laughs> I don't know. I, I can see that. It is, it is interesting how the how some of the English dialogue is uh, changed around to be a li- quite a bit different from the original Japanese, for sure. And uh, I also love, there's a scene about 72 minutes in where it's showing the guy who is controlling the Super X2 because the Super X2, unlike the first one, can be controlled remotely. They don't need to have people in it, which is a smart move. And when they when it, when they cut to this guy and he he's sitting in a chair and he has a couple of joysticks, uh, and all I can think is, you look like the world's most intense gamer at an arcade right now. <laughs> it's like <laughs> just the faces that he's making. <laughs> just I'm picturing he's just sitting there mashing buttons and things are shooting at Godzilla on the big screen because well that does sound a lot like the '80s. Yes, it does. And let's be honest. We're going to see a lot of giant screens where we're watching everything happen in these movies. So, yeah, the control rooms keep getting more elaborate. Yes, uh, they do. Yeah. Or uh, there's some inexplicable things with control rooms later. And then there's a point about 82 minutes in where we see Mickey. She's finally woken up after she's passed out from deterring Godzilla. And she's messing around with something. And she's what it is, is it's foreshadowing Biolante's final form. And in my notes, I wrote, Mickey's really good at Mario paint. Speaking of Mario, that'll sort of get us into what movies does this connect to? Because, well, it's pretty obvious. One would definitely be Super Mario and the Piranha Plants. Yep. Gotta be. <laughs> Gotta be. Uh, the, the most obvious one, of course, is uh, Little Shop of Horrors. <laughs> little Shop, Little Shop of Horrors. <laughs> so what do we do with that? Because that came out really 86. soon. Yeah. So obviously they saw it and they liked it. And so we got the launch. I would almost bet money that Omori saw the, the original director's cut of Little Shop of Horrors because in the original filmed ending that they changed because test audiences didn't like it. Audrey 2, the monster plant, actually grows to kaiju size. In fact, there's multiple ones that grow to kaiju size and they terrorize the city. That's the last five, ten minutes of the movie. Yeah, it's them invading and taking over the whole planet. Yeah. Yeah. And there are points... (laughs) There are points where I kept thinking... They, the designers of Biolante, had to have seen Audrey too. Oh, of course, because Th- there's no, so there's no similar. guessing about that. They are so similar. It was, it was almost to the point where, especially when we get to the final battle, <laughs> especially now when I, my most recent viewing of this, where I kept thinking, how hilarious would it be if someone took the audio of Little Shop of Horrors and then played it over? 
So it looks like Biolante is singing instead of Audrey too. It yeah. would have been so funny. I just want to. I want to see. I just want to see Biolante break out in the song and say, "I'm a mean green mother from outer space. So get off my back and get out of my face. I'm mean and green, and I am bad." Yeah, we could. <laughs> it's, it, listeners, if any of you out there are really good at video editing or animations. Please make that happen. You will be my new hero. <laughs> but it's not just that. There are some other points where I was drawing some humorous parallels between this and the Little Shop of Horrors. One of the things, the way we're introduced to Mickey Sagusa in this is that she's hanging out in Dr. Shiragami's garden and she's talking to the plants. Psychically. Yes. Yeah, psychically. And I look at that now and I'm thinking, what is she hearing from these plants? Is it, you know, feed me, Mickey, feed me all night long. (laughs) And then you mentioned the scene when Dr. Shiragami is being disgusted with the gene splicing that he's doing. And and I'm I'm thinking, I'm thinking of uh, another song sequence in Little Shop with Rick Moranis. And uh, I, I, ch- I changed their lyrics around so it's, you know, so, I gave you G-cells, now grow for me. Yeah. <laughs> so please grow for me. I'm probably butchering that version of the song. I'm sorry. <laughs> Did you also catch the possible Back to the Future connection? Oh, what was that? The ending is, I practically expect the one guy to be like, the Libyans. <laughs> yeah. That, it seems like pretty, I don't know, maybe that's just a random occurrence, but it sure seems familiar when I saw it this last time and having seen Back to the Future ending a hundred thousand times, it just repeated for me a little bit. And before we move on, there are a couple of other Western references that get thrown into this because, because as we said, Omori loves American movies, but... The, we had a line dropped about Romeo and Juliet. First time I have ever seen Shakespeare referenced in a Godzilla movie, unless you want to count the American opening of King Kong versus Godzilla. But And then later on, this one's uh, actually a little more difficult to swallow, uh, the the heroic scientist at the, at the end after he tries to chase down the, the, the Saradian assassin and his girlfriend said that he was like Batman. Yeah. I'm like, really? Yeah. <laughs> really? Batman. Which, which the 1989 Batman was yeah. out at this point. It was. Yeah. So I'm just thinking, yeah, so uh, Batman-ish there. Yeah, he chased the guy down in a Humvee and then stared at him before Bomber Jacket vaporizes him. Yeah. Just like in that Batman that we saw. Yeah, just no, like wait, in no, Batman. Never mind. Uh-huh. <laughs> What? There are so many references to other stuff in this. And yes, American movies were outperforming Japanese movies still in the, in the theaters a lot of the time um, because there are so many blockbusters just popping out of America left and right. Like I've said, there are a lot of things going on in this movie. There are a number of concepts, I guess it would term them, that are thrown around in this movie, but then they don't do anything with them, I guess. And, and one would be the... The idea of the anti-nuclear energy bacteria, they, they use it practically against Godzilla, 
but at the same time, they throw around the idea of this bacteria could make nuclear weapons obsolete by getting rid of everything that's radiation, nuclear radiation related. It would, it would tip the balance of power in the Cold War, which was winding down at this point. But they don't really do anything about that, though. No. It's just a concept. It's supposed to be the impetus for why we have Biomajor and the Saradians going after sure, the anti-nuclear energy. Sure, you need motivation for all this stuff happening on the screen, yeah. but at the same time, that none of that's ever really followed through on, and, and it's more of just a, a way to plug it into the real world, I guess. Yeah, it, in some ways it reminds me a little bit of the unobtainium in Avatar. <laughs> It's uh-huh. except at least in this, they they explain why people would want it and what it could do. What it always annoyed me watching Avatar, where they bring up the unobtainium, but they don't say why anybody wants it. They and some people say, well, it's not an important detail. It's like, no, it's a very important detail because depending on why the villainous characters want it, that's going to determine whether or not I will sympathize with them or not. Unobtainium. Oh, gosh. Another one is really late in the movie, they introduce this new piece of technology that's being tested. It's called the Thunder Control System. I forgot that that even existed, and I've seen this movie so many times now, and it's just something I immediately forget. Yeah, it's this thing where they can generate artificial lightning using microwaves and it's this giant field with these big pads that essentially become landmines for Godzilla whenever he steps on them they can hit a button and then a lightning bolt will come down and strike him we never see it again and it gets thrown in way late way late in the movie no foreshadowing nothing I guess you're just supposed to accept the fact that if they have something as advanced as the Super X2 that oh obviously they would be able to pull this out of our rear end yeah yeah I'm just okay I I even remember when this most recent time I watched it when they when they mentioned it the first time I was like wait oh yeah that's a thing where did this come from (laughs) and it's not that I need to know where it comes from but it's just an odd way to do it it's, it's sort of like the, the thing at the end of Hetera, but that actually made sense yes. because they've established it all throughout the movie working towards that as the end point. But this was just, oh, we have lightning control and, and we're doing it through microwaves to warm Godzilla up because we need to do that. Yeah. Because, because the anti-nuclear somehow. energy bacteria won't work on him because he's cold-blooded and has a low body temperature. <sighs> That's it's, already a bit of a stretch for me. There is so much science being shoehorned into a fantasy creature. It's funny. It's very odd. It's like we're in two different dimensions. It's and, like we're in fantasy world and we're in science world at the same time. We can just uh, we can just throw all these things in with each other and it doesn't make any sense anymore. So. Just do whatever. I think you can make stuff like this gel. It's just not gelling very well in this. There are so many points where this movie tries so very hard to science, and it sciences badly. Or just in this inexplicable way. Or just every And every once in a while during the movie, there is some really interesting concept that they throw around, but then nothing ever happens out of that. And I'm thinking, oh, well, you should have made the movie about that. 
But instead, they didn't make it about that. Yeah, I really do feel like it needed to be a bit more focused. You can't throw this many concepts into your story unless you're a really good writer and keep it from being bogged down. It's like we're it's like we were all old men and we were sitting in this corporate stuffy boardroom meeting and some guy gets the idea to bring in the, the younger guy because he's full of ideas. And he comes in and he and he just starts pitching us idea after idea after idea. And and we're like, okay, yeah, sure, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, that idea sounds good too. Yeah. And then they all just get pulled into one thing and you expect to make sense out of it. But but you can't because it's just a bunch of ideas that it becomes idea soup, and you have to and there and there there isn't anything distinct anymore. And it's like you should, you could have just taken one or two of these ideas that were thrown around in this movie and done something with that, and have just have that be our focus. I get used to it, but this was the hardest one to get used to, out of all of them regarding all of these all of the stuff with the Heisei series. And I understand why a lot of people like this movie, though. It's because there are a lot of good ideas in it. And it's because it's complex for a change. And that's good. Difference is good in that respect. Yeah. We just wish it would have been done a little bit of a different way. But overall, sure, there are a lot of good ideas. And there are a lot of leaps that they take that they wouldn't have thought about taking before. And that's good, too, in theory. Yeah. This is... If I could think of a word to use to describe this movie you know, in summary, it would be transcendental, or at least it attempts to be transcendental with all of these really interesting ideas, especially when you're talking about the, the spiritual elements that are in this. The, I keep thinking of the closing narration in this movie, which still confuses me a little bit about how how long have we lived in an age like this? You know, maybe since the Garden of Eden and all of that. And I, I feel mm-hmm. like the movie's reaching for something. It's reaching for something. It just doesn't quite get there. And instead you want something that's going to cinematically gel. And I don't know if this cinematically gels or not. But overall, though, I still commend the movie because it does and tries so many different things. It's not my favorite movie out of this Heisei series, I don't think. Probably Return of Godzilla is. But I still, um, if this movie didn't exist, it would have made the rest of the movies look even more safe. Yeah. Safe in a bad way. As in, they don't try anything new at all. At least with this, they, they, they thought themselves out of a corner. And they were able to generate something really new, really different, and significant. And it's a very memorable movie even though I have a terrible time remembering some things from this movie, even though I've seen it a lot. The the overall ideas, uh, the overall thrust of the movie is very memorable because it's so different. Yeah. Something else to keep in mind in this is that when you try something new, you're not always going to succeed at it. And this movie, as we said, tries a lot of new things, but it it doesn't pull them all off. But the fact remains, it still took the risks. That's the best thing we can say about this movie. It took a lot of risks. It dared to be different. Right. Yeah. 
With that, let's move on to part three. This concludes part two of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. For part three of the podcast, we will be discussing an issue that was either brought up by the film or was going on at the time the film was released. And for this time, it's actually a, both of those things. For this issue, it is the Human Genome Project, which uh, this was going on, and uh, the film directly references it through uh, the process of referencing genetic engineering, at least. Yeah, I, I remember hearing about this a lot growing up. Yes, in science class and... Uh, the news. News uh, periodicals. Yeah, it was a very big deal. Now the human genome has been uh, mapped extensively, and we have uh, genetic companies that you can have your own genetics run through, and you can find every single piece of your DNA there. Well, yeah, which actually you've done, Brian. Yes, I've done 23andMe, uh, which I would, I would recommend 23andMe. It's a very good service. Yeah, this, this took a long time to do as well, about 13 years, I believe. Mm-hmm. It was a very long process. But it's actually the, the largest collaborative biological project ever undertaken. This was conducted on the campuses of about 20 different universities all over the world. Yes, very collective effort. Yeah, uh, we're talking the United States, the UK, Japan, France, Germany, Canada, and China. The concept of doing this was started around 1984, and the project was enacted in 1990, and it was expected to take about 15 years, but they did, so they did finish a little bit early. It was also expected to cost about $3 billion to complete, and it was funded by the Department of Energy and the National Institute of Health in the United States. There have been a lot of fields that have benefited from the the Human Genome Project, It has helped us understand diseases, including genotyping of specific viruses, which we can use to direct treatment, identification of mutations linked to cancer, design of medication, accurate prediction of their effects, advancement of forensics, biofuels, agriculture, animal husbandry, bioprocessing, risk assessment, anthropology. There's so many things that this this was able to benefit. I, I won't bore you with the entire list but it's a long one and having our own genetics right at our fingertips is an amazing result of all of this it's very nice to have that information because you know what kind of things to watch out for you know you get to learn what kinds of cancers you probably should be getting examinations for before things get out of control and it's too late it's not really like you're finding out some sort of genetic fate or anything it's not like genetics is the only thing that causes cancer it's definitely not but it, this is very useful information that people find out in regards uh, to their own bodies that, that they really have a right to know. The Human Genome Project was an undertaking by the, by the government. However, there was a guy in 1998 named Craig Venter who was an American researcher. And he said that he could do what was going on with the Human Genome Project, but do it faster and do it cheaper. He intended to complete the the mapping of the human genome at a cost of only 300 million dollars as opposed to 3 billion gigantic loss of uh, some zeros there and although he's he was going to do this by using data from the publicly funded project this was with a company that he had started called Celera genomics but the big difference is is that Celera intended to file patents on many of the genes that it mapped originally going for about 100 to 300 targets it eventually filed 6,500 preliminary patents on whole or partial genes 
but and they wouldn't distribute the data that they collected for free, which prompted their publicly funded competitors to release the rough draft of their data uh, on July 7th, two th- the 2000, which was a few years sooner than they were expecting to do. And they put it out onto the Internet. And the scientific community went nuts when that happened. They downloaded 500 gigabytes of data from these servers in just 24 hours. Now, I know that doesn't sound too impressive by today's standards, but this is the early days of the Internet. So this was huge. And that's what this movie seems to be grasping onto is the competition that was taking place about patenting genes and and patenting that information in order to make money off of it. And so then we have all these companies and and nation states really competing with each other about who's going to end up on top. Yeah, because you have uh, an American corporation called Biomajor and the Saradians who are both vying for the Godzilla cells for all of the benefits they think that they can get out of it. We don't know of any terrorism that any genetics companies in real life actually perpetrated against each other like you know any i don't know of any terrorist faxes or anything like <laughs> terrorist that, faxes yeah that, that actually happened in real life we don't we don't have that but genetics is a massively profitable operation still it's just that they can't patent the actual genes but you can make products off of that information you can do all kinds of stuff with the information that is publicly available about the human genome but that depends, if, depending on if you're a drug maker, because there were diabetes drugs that were made that uh, were made regarding uh, genetic uh, research. But it's things like that, you know. Yeah. The thing is, what Celeror was doing actually went against what are called the Bermuda Principles, which were agreed to in 1996, two years before Celeror got started on its own project. And this was done at a summit at, you guessed it, Bermuda. And these principles were... One, the automatic release of sequence assemblies larger than one kilobyte, and preferably this should be done within 24 hours. Two, the immediate publication of finished annotated sequences. And three, aim to make the entire sequence freely available in the public domain for both research and development in order to maximize benefits to society. So they were seeing this as this isn't something you should be making money off of. It's public information. It's public information. It's going to benefit a lot of people. No one should own a monopoly on something like this. Right. Which is why in the year 2000, president Clinton declared that the genome sequence couldn't be patented and that all the data should be shared freely. And as you would expect, this made Celera's stock plummet and cost the biotechnology sector $50 billion in market capitalization in two days. So then this was open for companies, private, public, everybody to be able to get this information. And then at that point, that's where it becomes a market is what you can make off of those genes, not the genes themselves. Definitely one of those fields would be genetic engineering of plants and crops and uh, as well as flowers. That's when there was research done that was that they were attempting to create a blue rose, for instance. And that was actually in 2004 that a blue rose was finally created using an, uh, an artificial pigment. And they, it's uh, very interesting, though, that roses were one of the flowers that was specifically early on looked at for genetically engineering. And it's funny that then we have Bilante as a rose. But there was, uh, there was a lot of research done on roses 
and uh, and on genetically engineering different hybrids uh, and everything else. And with crops, it's different because they're trying to do what? Get higher yields. So they're trying to create stalks of corn with not two ears of corn on them, but three. That increases your output by 50%. And so that is majorly a big deal for getting higher crop output. And that directly helps humanity. And so it, it, genetic engineering has been done for aesthetic reasons as well as for genuinely scientific things that improve uh, human life. This isn't to say that everyone was on board for the Human Genome Project or that it was all sunshine, rainbows, and unicorns. People were concerned that this knowledge could be used by health insurance companies to refuse to hire people or refuse to provide coverage, health insurance, for people based on their genes. So because of this, the U.S. Congress passed the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, or HIPAA, you know, those papers you always have to sign when you go to the doctor, which protects against unauthorized and non-consensual release of individually identifiable health information to any entity not actively engaged in the provision of healthcare services to a patient. So what could happen is a health insurance company could look at your genetics and see that we'll say you have a high risk of a particular cancer. And then they will say, well, this means within five years you'll have cancer. We don't want to pay for your cancer treatment because we know it's coming. Right, and then they just drop you from coverage. Later in the 2000s, uh, there was a law uh, signed into act, which is the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, or GINA, and that is the only legislation on a federal level that will provide protections against discrimination based on an individual's genetic information within the context of health insurance coverage and employment. And so if they can't get your genes and your genetic information and then use that against you regarding health insurance or uh, especially in employment, where if you're applying for a job or something and they find something in your genes that they don't want to deal with, then they could literally not hire you. And so th this was uh, important in the civil rights area uh, of the law in making sure that there isn't a massive amount of genetic discrimination just taking place like this. So thankfully, the, uh, this law is now in effect. But uh, the, yeah, the, there's also the other issue of scientists being given all of this information for our DNA and, and then doing something nefarious with it or developing something nefarious with it, like a weapon or whatever else. And, and that's, that's looked at in the movie, too, because it, it talks about how, oh, well, in trying to attack Godzilla with this kind of technology, we could actually make something worse than Godzilla. And that's actually what pretty much ends up happening. Yeah, and uh, that's actually one of the themes of the movie. The Dr. Shiragami actually comes out and says that Godzilla and Biollante are not the monsters. The real monsters are the scientists who created them. Right. And so we're getting uh, into that thematic element, which that does work really well in the story, actually. And actually, what's interesting is that it's kind of a self-indictment, too, because Dr. Shiragami is the man who created Biollante. Yeah, it messes around with this idea of, not, of unchecked science and, and also the idea of sort of government-cooperated science in engaging in, especially when they bring up the, the thing with the anti-nuclear bacteria possibly being used to make nuclear weapons obsolete. And then I assume that would recreate 
the world into an, an old pre-nuclear kind of warfare, which is all, I would guess, conventional. Which, yeah, we, we could all probably destroy all of ourselves that way, too. It just, it just take as, longer. Yeah, it just take longer. It would be harder. Too bad, huh? But there's, there's this idea of, of unchecked science and using science nefariously. And I don't remember where in our research we found this, but it was the, the idea of science being put under government. And that's really different than a lot of these other movies we've had, where scientists are not they aren't controlled by the government directly as pawns. No, they're working independently. And so we have the subordination of science under other things, which is a big departure from the movies that we've had so far in the Godzilla series, I would say. Um, I think with the Heisei series, we, we definitely get science as a tool rather than science as a public service or public good or promotion of uh, of human values, human rights, etc. Yeah, that's interesting because, uh, as we've mentioned a few times, you know, the scene where Dr. Shirogami is doing the gene splicing, they have thunder and lightning and everything going on. Oh, yeah, the atmosphere. <laughs> yeah, the atmosphere. of is it, Are you trying to be an old Universal horror movie now? <laughs> yeah. It's a little on the nose, but I, I get what they were going for. Yeah, meaning that it's this is not... Uh, something beneficial that's going on right now. And, uh, and we should be very, we should treat this very suspect with regards to the motives that people have when they're engaging in, in science that is this weird. I mean, now we're getting to that point where a lot of articles, I don't know if you've seen them yet or not, are talking about the whole idea of genetically engineering your own baby. Yeah. I've been hearing about that for years. Right. So like it's the, genetically engineering your own essentially would be a manufactured human is what we're talking about here, which is um, something that we're going to have to deal with down the line, especially as well as, uh, as uh, Android artificial life technology as well. Oh my. That's one thing we haven't had yet as a, as a Godzilla movie about AI. Everybody's doing it now. One historical note that we want to make uh, is definitely the fact that the Heisei era did begin in 1989. January of 1989. Yes, with the uh, death of uh, Emperor Hirohito and the ascension of Akihito. And so this is a, definitely a change that was going on in Japan for sure. And it was Akihito was more informal, personable, kind of let his, he's kind of like a let your guard down kind of guy. Like, I guess during his first press conference, he a reporter stood up to ask him a question. He said, no, sit down and, and, so, and just relax. You know, it's, it's not, he has, uh, he has very much continued the post-war attitude of, uh, of the Imperial family. It's been quite continuous during this time uh, in, in his desire for peace, his desire for reconciliation and for uh, being the first official non-deity of, of the imperial family, he will definitely be remembered as an extremely uh, important figure in, in the imperial family for a long time. And this was a big deal because Hirohito was the longest reigning emperor in the history of Japan. So for several generations, he was the emperor. It was the only one that they had known. 
One important event that happened in Japan's history regarding uh, U.S. relations was in uh, 1989 as well, and that was the United States declared Japan a major non-NATO ally of the United States. So what the status is, this was the, it was, this was the first round of countries that were declared. Uh, some of the other countries were South Korea, Australia, Egypt, and Israel. And so this was a status that we gave to countries that are not members of NATO, but are also integrally important to the United States uh, defense. And there are some key benefits that come along with this. A few that I'll mention would be that they can they can participate in cooperative research, uh, research and development projects with the Department of Defense. They can participate in certain counterterrorism initiatives, which is a big benefit. And they can possess war reserve stocks from Department of Defense equipment that are, that's kept outside of U.S. military bases, among other things. Yes, it's not, it's a series of benefits, and uh, there there are no, there are some other countries that have been given the status uh, since 1989, but there uh, really aren't very many of them. Uh, they are only uh, very strategically important places, and uh, it allows it just allowed for uh, more cooperation and and more of a more strength uh, between the United States and Japan. And this was a uh, this status was declared by uh, George H. W. Bush uh, in '89. Uh, Another historical event that occurred, obviously, in 1989 was the fall of the Berlin Wall, which changed a great many things. That goes without saying. There were some issues that were going on in this year, though, that weren't all that great from an alliance perspective. There was a lot of uh, upset people that were caused when uh, Japanese investors bought not only Rockefeller Center, but Columbia Pictures, the movie studio. And so this... uh, this engendered some distrust and uh, resentment in the United States because of these two properties and, and a few others that were, uh, it looked as if it was the whole, what, they're, they're buying up our everything, which I think more of that is actually happening with China now than it is with Japan. But this was the period of time that this did happen with Japan. There were also some disagreements with bilateral trade in that the United States named Japan as an unfair trading partner in the areas of forest products, supercomputers, and telecommunications satellites. It was also in this year that the Nikkei 225, the stock market uh, average for Japan, reached its all-time peak. And so this year was a very momentous year in a sort of either we were changing the guard or we were beginning a new era. To bring us up to date with economic figures between our last Japanese film and this one, in 1984, we left off with economic growth at 4.46%. In 1985, there was economic growth of 6.33%. In 1986, 2.83%. In 1987, 4.10%. And in 1988, 7.14%. This era is, uh, the era of growth is still going on. We have a few more years of it. Economic growth in 1989 was 5.37%. And in 1990, which we don't have a Godzilla movie that year, but in 1990, economic growth was 5.57%. Although, as we will find out, the stock market took gigantic plunges in uh, 1990, as we've heard us, hopefully heard us talk about the asset bubble in uh, our 1985 episode. And speaking of 1991, 
we did have a Godzilla movie that year. Yes, we will be getting to Godzilla versus King Ghidorah, where our favorite three-headed dragon gets revived, along with some other elements of Invasion of Astro Monster. Let's just say it's it's interesting. Very memorable film. Uh, I have actually become a fan of it as of late. Uh, we will see you next time. If you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, our YouTube channel, and on our website, kaijuvision.com. Thanks to Audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music, www.fiverr.com slash audiophiliac. If you like our podcast, please support us on Patreon. I'm Nathan Marchand, and I'm the podcast webmaster. And I'm Brian Scherchel, and I edited this podcast. Sayonara.